I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Kyle Quas. This is episode 408 for September 27th, 2012. Today's guest is Montreal-based pianist David Rishpan. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Go buy their records. Thank you. Thanks also to Dave Rabel and Rob Grundle, who designed the Jazz Session logo and the Jazz or Bust logo, respectively. You can become a member of the mailing list for the Jazz Session, which after October will just be my mailing list. You can do that at thejazzsession.com and click on the mailing list link at the top if you're interested in staying in touch with me and what I'm doing uh, after the final show on October 29th. That's a great way to do that. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, where I post about jazz and many, many other non-jazz things. Let's see, if it's Thursday the 27th, then if you're listening to this in the morning, I am, or actually mostly during the day, I am in Jackson, Mississippi. But tonight, I'm taking a long overnight bus ride to Auburn, Alabama, which isn't actually all that far away, but I have almost an eight-hour layover in Birmingham. I think I get there at three o'clock in the morning, and then I leave around 10 or something like that. It's some ridiculous number of hours that I have to just sit there. So uh, I'll be in Auburn for a couple of weeks, and then I head out to Santa Fe, New Mexico, to become a resident at the Upaya Zen Center. Remember that there will be shows through October 29th, and the archives of the Jazz Session, the, the website itself, will just remain online. So therefore, you'll have access to all of the shows from the very first one up to the very last one, number 419, or 417, uh, for as long as you want. So please go check those out whenever you want. Recently, I was in Montreal, and I knew a couple people in the area from Twitter. One of them was David Rishpan, who helped hook me up with some other interview opportunities and also with a place to stay um, with his friend Sarah MK, who you'll actually hear on Monday's show. Uh, David met me at the Montreal train station. We did the interview right there in the train station, as I think you'll probably be able to hear. And uh, I got a chance to see him play that night with uh, the Community Jazz Project, which was really cool. And uh, just a great guy. Really enjoyed hanging out with him and talking to him. And I was very glad to finally get a chance to, to put a face to the name and uh, take him out of the realm of social media and into the actual world. So we'll hear some music from David Rishpan, followed by our conversation. Here it comes.
my guest here in the Montreal Central Station, which is not exactly where I thought this might happen, but a cool setting anyway, is the pianist David Richpan. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Thanks for being Jason. Here. Uh, we're here in Montreal. There's a, there's a ton I want to ask you about. I guess one of the things I want to ask you about, uh, and this was kind of the point of this tour, this travel, was a, about finding people who are making lives in creative music who decided not to go to New York or are not from New York. Uh, and you're someone who's got a lot of stuff going in many different projects, mm-hmm. all based right here in Montreal. And so I wanted to ask, I know you you came here, you started your base here because of McGill, but what keeps you here? What is it that keeps you in Montreal? The music, the music that's happening here is so varied. There's a lot of different cultural communities here, um, and the, the musical... Uh, perspectives I find of, of people are, are just as good as anything you would find anywhere else and uh, because cost of living here is still fairly low compared to compared to Toronto even and certainly compared to New York there's a little bit less of a hustle that needs to happen and so people can be a little bit more particular about what they want to do and what they have to do um, so that's been a, a great benefit and a great perk uh, of staying here you know i still have that kind of every time i go to new york i i flirt with the idea of moving and there's there's definitely things happening in new york that are not happening here that um do get frustrating sometimes there's a certain uh amount of sort of household name awareness maybe maybe that's not the right phrase but uh you know people who are kind of common knowledge in the jazz scene in New York are not known here and the same is true the other way around like if I went to New York and asked someone who Jean de Rome was or if they knew who Jean de Rome was the answer would likely be no I'm assuming I don't know who that is right um, you know and the same thing here when I come back and I say oh I just went to go see Guillermo Klein or Kate McGarry everyone's like who <laughs> and for the music that I'm working on these days people not having those reference points can get a little uh, frustrating just in, in the way I have to explain things and pitch things from a marketing point of view. But the musicians that I'm working with, my peers, my colleagues, the people I studied under, like the people in the generations ahead of me are, are absolutely fantastic. And I learn from them every time I hear them or I play with them. Are there, uh, is there a diversity of kind of sub-genres inside the Montreal jazz scene? Yeah, there's a lot. Um, Manouche is very big. Um, again, I'm probably going to slip into what we call franglais <laughs> a lot just because I've been here for 10 years and sort of, you know, I'm so used to what we refer to things as here in Montreal that I kind of forget what the real English terminology is for sure. it. But like Django okay. stuff, like Gypsy Swing. Sure. That's huge here. And there's also a really big... Uh, free jazz or creative music scene. The French term is musique actuelle, or like music of the moment, I guess is what you would, you would translate it as. Okay. So there's a lot of that, uh, music. And then there's, you know, every kind of, uh, straight ahead or common practice jazz along the gamut of like post bop and bebop influenced things from guys like Kevin Dean, who I think Peter Hum told you to mm-hmm. check out. Um, to guys that are influenced by Benny and Dave Douglas and, and that whole thing, guys like Joel Miller and, and uh, Chet Doxis and Christine Jensen. Sure. So, yeah, there is a pretty wide gamut of 
of what's happening in town. And what about places to play? Places to play, that's the contentious issue. Um, I guess you've probably heard this, that there's more musicians than there are venues. You've probably heard that everywhere it's on exactly the tour. exactly the same, yeah, just about right? everywhere. Um, the thing I, I like about Montreal, and I see it happening more in different cities too, is that there are places that are booking jazz, but they're not exclusively jazz clubs. Okay. Um, I actually like playing those places. I think it gets to an audience that, you know, a strictly jazz club does not access. Now, are you talking about places that are music clubs, but with a diversity of music, or places like exactly. art museums? Or, no, or... I'm, t I'm talking more about a place like Casa del Popolo, which is a great venue, and uh, they're known for having creative music of all kinds. Okay. But they're not exclusively or explicitly a jazz club. Um, and I like playing there because they have their own reputation as being this great place to go see any kind of music, but it's not a quote-unquote jazz club in sure. the sense of, you know, the same way people feel a little bit afraid to go to the symphony, you know. You've, right. you've spoken on, on the show a lot about kind of the, the, the myth of what an audience member needs to have going into a jazz club. And sure. I think places like Casa or Sala Rosa, which is their sister club, or even even a loft space like L'Envers, uh, I think it does a lot to dispel that kind of mythology. But there are great jazz clubs here. The main two are upstairs and Diazons. Diazons is French for Sharp Eleven. <laughs> and uh, there's also a House of Jazz, Maison du Jazz, which used to be called Biddles. It used to be a partnership with uh, the great bass player Charlie Biddle, who passed away, I guess, a decade ago now, almost. Uh, and it's now called House of Jazz. be fair to say that if you mention Montreal and jazz in the same sentence to most Americans, and it's certainly true for me, that what you think about is the enormous the festival, festival here. I mean, it's one of the largest festivals right. of its kind in the world. I wonder, does that have, as, as someone who's making your living day in and day out playing this music, does the presence of the festival here have an impact on what you're able to do the rest of the year? 
Yeah, it does. They they do have programming year-round, and so they're bringing people in. I think uh, one of the things that for a long time we were missing, uh, especially in the years... There used to be a club called Spectrum in, in Montreal, and it closed, I guess, five years ago now. Uh, and that was programmed by Equipe Spectra, who book the jazz festival. They run the jazz festival. They run a couple of other festivals throughout the year as well. Uh, that club closed. And so in the intervening couple of years between uh, their new place, L'Astral, opening and Spectrum closing, there was a real gap in sort of the programming that was happening here. So you had Upstairs, which is a small jazz club. You know, I think it holds about 80 people. Okay. Diazons holds about that many as well. And then you had huge theaters like Place des Arts, which are like 1,500, 2,000-seat theaters. So there were, there was this absence of a place, you know, 250, 300-seat place for a bigger jazz show. Sure. Someone who could draw significantly more yeah. than 80 but couldn't fill an enormous Exactly. There's Jesu, which is my favorite room in the city, hands down. Uh, David Beckett's favorite room in town as well. Uh, acoustics are great. Sightlines are great. Um, it's n it's a theater unto itself. So they have kind of programming all year, booking all year. It's not tied to the Jazz Fest the way Spectrum or L'Astral or Place des Arts is. Um, so you can get Jesu, you can book Jesu if people want to, but it's not explicitly tied to any sort of jazz programming. So uh, that would take up some of the slack, but not all of it. So now that Astral is around, it's better. You know, there's there's places to have bigger jazz shows all year. Um, it So in that sense, yeah, there's, there's talent coming through all year. There could always be more. Um... I don't think it affects what I do in the sense of, you know, I don't see them at all my gigs every year. I don't see André Ménard and Marc-André Sarrault every year. I know they're paying attention. I know that they have their, you know, their feelers out on the scene, but I don't, I don't see them around physically, you know. I thought one way that it might have an impact would be to just what you were talking about before to kind of lessen that that fear to to lower the bar to entry for the average Montreal resident because they're so used now after all of these years to having this creative music happening in their city that during the rest of the year it might not seem as crazy a thing to do to go out and see I hope so I mean they've been good the festival's been good to put in the back of their program what's happening in the clubs during the festival so hopefully that gives people the impetus to know what the clubs are that kind of exist all year round. Um, it is still the case, though, that I see people out at Jazz Fest that I never see the rest of the year. I see people coming out to events that I never see the rest of the year. All right, well, let's get you out of the role of tour guide and let's focus back on, on you, which is what we are here to talk about. You've got so many different things going on. Maybe we can start with uh, what you were rehearsing just moments ago, yes, almost. <laughs> yes, what I'm running from with all my equipment. Uh, that was a rehearsal for a show called Ali Quanta that I've co-written with uh, the vocalist Gitangeli Jane Serrano, 
both of us were on Matana Roberts's Coin Coin record. I met Gitanjali in New York, oddly enough, years ago. Um, I was at the now defunct Louis 649 on Avenue C, and I heard someone speaking French on the bar stool beside me in New York. <laughs> so I figured I had to make a conversation out of it. And it turns out she's a vocalist with a great background in theater. Uh, so the, the synopsis of the show, I'm calling it a staged song cycle, uh, which is a term I've jacked from Osvaldo Golihoff, the Argentine composer, because it's not opera, it's not musical theater, it kind of lives in between all these worlds. It's uh, songs that we've written to the poetry of her uncle, Francisco Serrano. And the story of the show is based on the history of her great-grandfather, General Francisco Rocky Serrano, who was a very active figure politician in the Mexican Revolution and afterwards. And uh, the very, very, very short version of it is that he was assassinated by his opponent in the middle of his presidential campaign. His opponent was also his mentor and his best friend and his brother-in-law. Wow. So it's a comedy. <laughs> it's a light family thing. Yeah. Um, but we've been working on it for two years. It's, it's scored for string quartet, voice, piano and electronics, bass, and drums and percussion. It's kind of an outgrowth of some of the things I was doing on the Indigon Trio and Strings record that came out in 2008 now. Um, because on that record, there's a piece that's based on a Pablo Neruda poem, and there's a, pace, a piece that's based on a Jorge Luis Borges poem. And I had, you know, Gitu and I had been friends for a while, and I just said to her, I was going back out to the Banff Center in 2010. And I just said to her in passing, look, I want to get back into writing to Latin American poetry. It just, there's something about the Latin American poetry that I have read that gets me to write differently. It forces me to write in a different way than I would just putting pencil to paper on my own. And she just mentioned that her uncle was a poet. And so she sent me, actually the first poem she sent me was not by her uncle, it was some pre-Hispanic Mexican anonymous poem that she sent me through email while I was at the Banff Center, and I finished it in a day. So when I came back from Banff, we sat down, I started looking at her uncle's poetry, and there was so much of it that was just sparking my compositional instincts. And because she's got such a, a strong background in theater, uh, we decided to make a fully staged show out of it. Um, we kind of came at it backwards, I have to admit, where we picked the poems first, and then the, sh the idea to make a show out of it came <laughs> after. Uh, so there's been a lot of revision and kind of trying to fit square pegs into round holes, but uh, we finally we finally settled on on an arc and a and a story that we're you know we're really thrilled to be telling.
from those those earliest days and and from the the record that you were mentioning before when you're talking about uh, writing based on these poems. Are you setting these poems for someone to sing in all cases, or just using them as kind of well for Ali Quanta? Yeah, I know in this case you it's, are. Yeah, it's definitely set. the The Neruda thing, the Neruda poem I set was called Bea from the Captain's Verses, and that was a text setting. I had this kind of creepy moment in the middle of a bookstore where I just picked out the Captain's Verses. I'm like, I've heard about Neruda. Um, I think I, I was thinking about um, Luciana Souza's Neruda album. Sure. Uh, I want to say that uh, Lorraine Hunt Lieberson did something with Neruda as well. So there, that was all swimming around. I'm like, okay, I should finally get around to reading some Neruda. And I picked out the captain's verses and I flipped open to Bea. And I'm reading it. And as I'm reading it, I hear the voice of Cayetano Veloso singing this in my head the whole first stanza and I just kind of put the book away started writing stuff down in my notebook went to the library grabbed a copy as quick as I could and just finished it you know and forced myself to work from that first stanza and then and then move forward on that tune so that was sort of a literal text setting although no one was singing the Borges poem was more of a tone poem thing I was just inspired by his use of language, the way that poem, it was uh, Heraclito from In Praise of Darkness. And there's these recurring phrases in, in the structure of the poem, and it was just so clearly laid out and just screaming to be set in that way that uh, I, I had to do it. So I, I wrote that piece, and both of them are on the Indigon record. Can you put your finger at all on what it is about Latin American poetry that that helps you find this this other place in your compositional brain? I think it's because the structure, at least from what I've read, is so inherently musical. When I'm reading it, not that I'm fluent in Spanish by any means, but I'm reading it and the sound of the language and the way these writers structure those poems... There's very direct musical analogs in my head. There's very clear structures that I can work from and either explode or work within or whatever the case may be. But they definitely guide me into a path and, and down sort of a way of working that I don't necessarily channel when it's just me and a pencil and my notebook. Sure. Have you explored poetry in other languages to see if the effect is the same? If it's, the... I have. When I was at the Banff Center, there was an American poet who was in residency as well, and he gave me his book, 
And I went through it, and nothing really grabbed me. It's beautiful poetry, but nothing really grabbed me compositionally. Um, nothing that I've read in French has really grabbed me that way either. I, I don't really know. Sure. You sent me another record that I, I really enjoyed and hits close to uh, a particularly soft spot in my heart, which is the Trio Brucho record. Will oh, you talk thanks. about that trio? Yeah, so that trio, again, someone called me the most uh, Latin gringo they know. <laughs> um, yeah, that trio started, I guess, around 2008, officially, um, when I was at the Banff Center the first time in 2005. I met this amazing pianist named Carrie Pollitzer, who lives in Portland now. You know what? We should tell people what the Banff Center is, just in case. So the Banff Center for the Arts is in Banff, Alberta, Canada. It's an arts residency center um, for all kinds of arts. They have a jazz workshop that Dave Douglas ran for the past 10 years. That's in late May, early June. That's the one in 2005 where I met Carrie. Uh, Vijay Iyer just took it over. Yeah, and hopefully he'll be there for another decade. Um, so the Banff Center, there, there's something about the Banff Center, too, that if you talk to anybody who's been, first of all, the Banff Center is kind of like an instant family. You know, oh, you went to Banff, what year? Oh, do you know this person and that person and this person <laughs> and that person? Like, a lot of people I know that have moved to New York have moved to New York because of the Banff Center. They've met enough people through Banff. Uh, that live in New York or who have also moved to New York, uh, that they kind of have some sort of bearings when they move. Sure. Um, but Banff is, is an absolutely magical place. Um, Dave has written about it on the Greenleaf blog a lot when he's been out there, and it's just great. Thank uh, you. I love it. Um, so, yeah, in 2005, I met Carrie, and I went to go hear her. There's a little club on the site of the Banff Center that they use mostly during the jazz residency. They don't really do anything else in there the rest of the year. I went to go hear her play with some other people who were at Banff, and they were playing her tunes. And there was this thing in her music that I had never heard before up to that point. I mean, I knew, like, the five Jobim tunes that all jazz guys learn as standards. But I had never really checked out Brazilian music to any serious degree. And so I went to her and I said, I love your music. What are you listening to? What are you getting this inspiration from? And she just gave me a list of all this modern Brazilian pop music, like Javan and Gilberto Gil and all this stuff. All this stuff. Just a list, like on a post-it note that was full of stuff. And so when I got back... Um, the main library in Montreal also has a great music section. It's kind of like the Lincoln Center library. Um, they have tons of CDs and DVDs, and you can sign them out and take them home. And so I just went down her list when I got back, and the first record I took out was uh, Alumbramento and Javan. It was like a double disc. And I put on the first track, which was Temboy na Linha, and it just hit me over the head. I'm like, where has this music been all my life? Where has it been all my life? Because it's intelligent pop music with such great rhythm, great harmony, but it's pop. There's such a strong melody to it, and there's vocals and everything. It's it's. I grew up on pop music. I grew up on Billy Joel and Elton John and Stevie Wonder and, and all that stuff. And this kind of incorporated everything I love about jazz 
and everything I love about really smart pop music with this rhythmic thing that I had never heard before. And then I just went down the rabbit hole, you know. <laughs> So the trio started, I had been listening to these records uh, for a while, but I never thought I could really play that music, um, certainly not lead my own band, because at the time I was not confident in my singing, and I certainly didn't speak a word of Portuguese. And all the Brazilian music I had heard up till that point was vocal music. Um, and I started going out to uh, the, the club here that had Brazilian music at the time. It's called Bobar. Uh, they had Brazilian music every Sunday for about 12 years. Um, it just recently ended, unfortunately, but it was a great run. And there were all these great Brazilian bands in town, but the repertoire was kind of the same. You know, I could count on kind of hearing like Carolina by Seu Jorge and Mashkenada and kind of great repertoire but kind of a fixed repertoire and it didn't have anything to do with the Milton Nascimento I was listening to at home. Sure. Um, and then through CKUT, the radio station I'm on, I co-hosted the World Music Show with another DJ, uh, Swan Kennedy, who has her own show now called Free Kick on the station. And she played me the Milton Banana Trio, or she played it on the show. And it's, it's a piano trio playing Brazilian music. And I was like, what is this? She's like, oh, you've never checked out the Milton Banana Trio before? And so she gave me that, and I kind of went down this other rabbit hole of Brazilian piano trios, Zimbo Trio, Tamba Trio, um, Samba Lanzu Trio, all the Azimuch, all, all these instrumental Brazilian bands, which is a really strong tradition that I don't think as many people know about. And I heard that, and I just kind of thought to myself, who would I call in Montreal if I wanted to form my own Zimbo Trio? Just to kind of force myself to learn these tunes and lift these tunes, transcribe these tunes, and, and whatever. I didn't really think of it as a serious band, as a serious project. So I called Mark Nelson on drums and Nick Bedak on bass, not giving any thought to whether or not they knew Brazilian music or listened to Brazilian music or whatever. They were just the players I heard in my head for that band. And it just kind of spiraled from there. Um, McGill University has a booking office, like a gig office. And I got an email that summer. This is probably 2000, 
2008 now, I guess, 2000, yeah, 2008, saying that if you have a band that can do cocktails but not jazz music, let us know. And so we threw together a demo, and really, I mean, my the repertoire at that point was just kind of a mishmash of stuff, tunes I had lifted, you know, Jobim tunes that were not so common, whatever it was, you know. And uh, at the time, I was maintaining a Google document of tunes I wanted to learn, tunes we already played, whatever, because I really got inspired by the groups like Tamba and Zimbo, who were self-contained trios, but they were also the rhythm section for invited singers. You know, there's records with Zimbo Trio and Elis Regina, Zimbo Trio and, you know, a million people. And I thought that was really cool, and I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to have a group that can accommodate, you know, the great Brazilian musicians that live in Toronto, that live in New York, that live in Brazil. If they want to come, they don't need to bring their whole band necessarily. They can come and we'll learn the tunes and we'll play with them and they can play my stuff and, and whatever. Um, so the trio was kind of founded with that mandate as well from the outset. And uh, it just kind of spiraled. I sent the, the Google Doc to uh, some Brazilian friends of mine, both in Montreal and in Brazil, and they just emailed me back and said, how do you know all these tunes? You know. And when I got the blessing from you know, the Brazilian community, I felt like I could move forward with that project. Can you talk about kind of walking the line, which I think the trio does well, between authenticity on the one hand and the the creativity or freedom of expression that we more associate with the jazz side of what you do. Right. Um, I mean, the fact is none of us are Brazilian. Sure. And as much as I want to play certain things authentically, um, and we we work on that, like, I mean, the the Brazilian swing is very important to me, and I really try to uh, incorporate that into Brucho, and we all really think about that. We all really try. If we're playing a buyout, we want to play a buyout. We don't want to, you know, just play, you know, the three side of the clave. We want to play a, a real buyout, you know. Um, but by the same token, when we went to Sao Paulo, um, we heard bands that were very creative. We got to see Zimbo Trio in Sao Paulo, and that was a real revelation for me. Because what we got to see, uh, their original drummer, Rubinho, is in the process of retiring, actually. So the show we saw, he did the first half of the set, and then his replacement drummer, um, whose name I'm forgetting right now, and I feel really bad for that, uh, played the second half. And what was amazing was that, you know, Rubinho, Zimbo Trio, they're one of the pioneers, along with Milton Banana, of what is called samba jazz. I hate that term, but that's kind <laughs> of the, the common parlance of it. You know, Rubinho and Milton were like the two first drummers to put all the Brazilian percussion patterns on kit. And so they play, he, Rubinho plays with that old school Brazilian swing. And to hear that live, it's like hearing Roy Haynes. It's like hearing Oscar Peterson live, just to have that coming at you. You know, that's the real... Uh, we have a train announcement.
Ah, it's not that loud. It's actually pretty impressive we've gone for 29 minutes without a train announcement. Right. <laughs> so anyway, back to uh, Sao Paulo. Yeah. So when the replacement drummer uh, took over, he sounded like Mark. It was a much more kind of straightened out version. I mean, the pocket was still incredible, but it didn't have that kind of, exaggerated is the wrong word, but it didn't have that old school sensibility. And so to hear that and to hear that that's how modern Brazilian drummers play um, was very important to me because I felt like we were very much in that tradition then. Um, the musicians we played with in Sao Paulo just really respected us and really made us feel at home and, and you know, said they loved what we were doing. You know, I felt so scared the first gig we had in Sao Paulo, it just kind of dawned on me. I mean, I had worked on that trip for a long time, but, you know, my feet hit the ground of the club. I'm like, we're a bunch of white guys playing Brazilian music in Brazil with Brazilian musicians <laughs> for a Brazilian audience. What the hell do right. I the, think the I'm doing? The potential for catastrophe was, right. was high. Yeah. But, you know, I, I still haven't played a gig with Trio Brusso that comes close to that gig we did at Jasnos Fundos. I mean, we've played better. Um, I found like the archive of the Jasnos Fundos gig and we are so jet lagged and we are so <laughs> off the mark. Um, but the audience reaction was just astounding to me because Jasnos Fundos, which translates into jazz in the back, it's in the back of a parking lot. You have to walk through the garage and turn left and there's the club. Um, and their mandate is instrumental music, or it was at the time. I think they've kind of opened it up from what I follow now since I've come back. But um, it's all instrumental music. But people sing along because they know all the words. The time I felt most like a gringo in Sao Paulo was when we were seeing Zimbo and they started playing Chega uh, de Saudade and everyone else was singing except us. <laughs> You know, I think there. I think that's what I f I find so um, appealing and moving about Latin music of all kinds, both for Ali Quanta and Brucho, is that there's a sense of roots um, in that music. You know, you listen to what Miguel Senon is doing. You listen to Guillermo Klein, even as kind of quote unquote out and advanced as they get, there's this thread of, of very intrinsically rooted musical awareness that exists in their music. And I think I only was able to really tap into that after going to Sao Paulo and seeing it and, and living it and, you know, walking on a sidewalk that has the Brazilian flag painted on it. Sure. You know, and, and really feeling and understanding what that kind of day-to-day -day awareness is of Brazilian culture there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like the difference between, you know, learning a language in high school and going to a place where right. they speak that language. Yeah, exactly. Internalizing it in a real way. Yeah.
So uh, tell me about other things that you're involved with. Wow, okay. Well, so Bruceo put out the EP on mm-hmm. Bandcamp, um, and that was mixed by my friend Moonstar, who's a DJ and producer in town. Um, complete Brazilophile as well. Um, he runs a record label called PTR, Public Transit Recordings. And there's another artist on that label named Sara Linhares, who's half Portuguese, half Irish, uh, born, born in Ottawa and living here now. I play... I produced a track on her record and I play in her live band. Uh, we've got a show coming up for Pop Montreal. I work uh, with a lot of hip-hop artists as well, R&B artists as well. Most of it stems from my involvement in the Calmunity Vibe Collective, which is a group of artists uh, started by the drummer Jason. It started, I guess, in 2003 just doing some quick math nine years yeah 2003 it started at a tiny tiny cafe in the little italy neighborhood um of poets singers musicians uh, artists of all kinds who just wanted an outlet to kind of do something different that they wouldn't get to do on their gigs so calmunity they've been running every tuesday with a handful of breaks for the past nine years they've switched venues now they're at bobards as well um but every tuesday for the past nine years and it's all improvised um it's rooted in groove but it's all improvised and what i love about that and this to me is kind of what makes montreal is that you can have a group of musicians and artists where you have a dancehall singer, a jazz piano player, a reggae drummer, a funk bass player, and a rapper and a jazz singer all on the same stage, all on the same tune. You know, uh, there used to be a thing as well around the same time called the Moon Data Project, which was a monthly, and it was the same kind of idea. It was curated by this guitar player named Matt Letterman, who now does like... uh, tech stuff for major tours major indie bands uh but it was him and rena thompson who's a trumpet player and the manager of kid koala and a bass player named peter x and every month they would convene with a bunch of people they would call and it was a real cross-section of montreal it wasn't confined to an artistic community it was like you'd have chet doxis on saxophone with Sun on drums and then Andrew Barr of the Barr Brothers on drums as well, and Patrick Watson, and, you know, all kinds of, you know, a, a coexistence of artists. You know, and they would have a VJ doing visual projections. And that's what really made Montreal to me, mm. was this kind of connection, both interdisciplinary and inter-genre, you know. Um, so that's the long explanation of saying I'm, part of the community vibe collective um and a lot of what i do in the hip-hop realm has kind of spun off from that like people see me at community or we play together at community and then they call me to work with them that's how i met uh, the people in this other hip-hop collective called nomadic massive which is a, a multicultural hip-hop group there's five mcs and vocalists and they rap in five different languages, French, English, Spanish, Creole, and Arabic. Yep, I highly recommend them for people who haven't checked them out. And six, they, they rap in Portuguese, too. 
And so I play with some of the artists from Nomadic Massive in their solo projects. So nice. there's a, an MC named Vox Sambu, who's from Haiti. I play in his solo project. Uh, the drummer and producer from Nomadic named uh, Butter Beats. Uh, we're, we have a, a salsa hip-hop project called Mantecoso. And that should be done, hopefully, by the end of the year. And uh, freelancing, I play with lots of different people in different communities. Uh, not so long ago, well, who knows? It's probably more than a year now. Everything is not so long. Either not so long ago or, or 10 years really ago long to me, ago. right? That's, those are the only two options for the past. So sometime between immediately before this interview and 10 years ago, I talked with Matana Roberts uh, about a couple different records, but included among them was CoinCoin. Coin. Uh, would you like to say a few words about that? Yeah. Um, every time that Matana emails me to be part of CoinCoin, Coin, it's a real privilege and uh one thing that i i don't know that it got enough coverage at least for my taste having been kind of inside it um was the fact that she chose to do it with a montreal group that she chose to record the montreal group and i don't think there's enough made necessarily i don't want to put words in matana's mouth and i'm sorry matana if you're listening to this <laughs> if i get it wrong just email me and 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 uh, email Jason and and set it straight. But it, it's just so beautiful when Matana comes here. And again, it, it kind of ties into that idea of community, of nomadic massive, of Moon Data, where she's pulling people that are not explicitly or exclusively jazz musicians. Like Lisa Gamble, Gambletron, plays electric saw, and she is not a jazz musician. She's a fantastic musician, but she's not a jazz musician. Um, she's pulling people from, you know, the, the music actuelle community, the indie rock community, the punk community, the jazz community. She's picking the people that she knows or hopes will do her music justice. Um, and she's really found a, a spiritual home with that label, with constellation records and with their roster. Um, 
she's done other chapters of Coin Coin here as well with Montreal players with Sam Shalaby and uh, Elwood Epps who runs Lanvere. Um I think there's a real kinship among the music actuel community and the the free jazz communities elsewhere. Mm. Um, and I think what Elwood's done with Lanvere, uh, who just did their own fundraiser a little while ago uh, to to make up on their rent and keep that space going, you know that that's been a real boost to the creative music scene here. Elwood also has launched a, a Tuesday series called Mardi Spaghetti at this uh, cafe called Kajibi. Which my Ottawa hosts told me the name of and then said, oh, that means Tuesday spaghetti. But, you know, right. the fact that I didn't grow up in Canada doesn't mean I've never heard a word of French before. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, that means Tuesday spaghetti. Yes. Thank you. Tuesday pasta. And what's, yes, exactly. I was just yeah. going to say, what's spaghetti mean? Right. So anyway, not but, to But, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I wanted to, to bring out because... In all the press I read about CoinCoin, it didn't necessarily address the Montreal aspect of it. Because, I mean, CoinCoin is such a huge work that there's so much to address. Sure. I just I just kind of wish, having been in it and having been called upon to do it, I think I did the recording, I've done the show at Victo, and then a couple of performances at L'Envers, both the chapter that got recorded, Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, Mississippi Moonchild. And, you know, Matana, when she comes up and when she rehearses here, it's, it's a really beautiful experience. How did the, how did the initial connection happen? How did Coin Coin get associated with Montreal at all? I know she had performed it, um, the club I had spoken about earlier, Casa del Popolo, they run a festival in June called Suoni per il Popolo, sounds for the people in Italian. Okay. Um, and again, it's creative music of all stripes. So you'll have people like William Parker, and they're actually right now they're running kind of a mini Swony. So they're uh, like Fond of Tigers and Haram oh, right, okay. and, and Sao Paulo Underground. Gotcha. This gotcha. is all kind of as part of a mini Swony festival, I guess. Um, I know Matt Ship is here this weekend. Is he yeah, here he's as playing part of tonight. That? Okay. Yeah, as part of that with Darius Jones. Um, yeah, so they run this festival every June. And I know she had done uh, a couple of performances of Coin Coin through that festival. Uh, she is also very close with Godspeed You Black Emperor um, and a Silver Mount Zion. Actually, the first performance of Coin Coin I saw was with kind of a spinoff of Silver Mount Zion. It was Thierry Amar and uh, Sophie and, and, and that crew of people who were also on Constellation. So her her real kind of home base, as far as Montreal is concerned, is is Constellation Records. I would say, uh, I hope I got that right. <laughs> and uh, so it kind of grew out from there. She did. Uh, she brought the New York band for Mississippi Moonchild to Swanee as well. Um, and then she did a few performances at Lanvere solo work, uh, doing Coin Coin with Montreal people, and. Uh, I can't remember when the first time I did it was. I think it was it was 2010 because I got the email while I was in Banff and I was kind of shocked because I'm not I'm kind of on the outer periphery of the actual scene. Like people know who I am, but I'm not necessarily considered a player in that community. You know, there's some great pianists who work in that scene, Charity Chan with uh, her project Caribou Sonore, who's tied in with Swony for this little festival, this mini festival. 
you know, so I'm kind of on the periphery of that community. Um, so when I got the email from, from Matana saying, do you want to play coin coin, uh, you know, at such and such a date in Montreal, I was like, hell yes. <laughs> you know, I was, I was just shocked that I was on her radar, you know. Oh, that's great. My guest is David Rishpan, pianist uh, based here in Montreal, and it's been a pleasure to finally meet you. We've known each other uh, online yes. for quite a while now, and it's it's great to uh, have a human being to go yes. with the online profile. So thanks very much for doing it. Thanks, Jason. music from David Rishpan, Montreal-based piano player. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Kyle Quas. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can join the mailing list, my mailing list, at thejazzsession.com and just click on mailing list up at the top. And I guess I should also probably put a link to that over at the jasoncrane.org site, which I will at some point. As I'm actually recording the intro to this, although it's significantly before the actual air date, that site was hacked and uh, is not accessible at the moment, so uh, it's a bit annoying. But anyway, hopefully I'll get it back at some point. So that's it. Please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.